everybody welcome to the rich by 36 podcast for thursday october 22nd this might be the best episode that we've ever done uh, i just got off a zoom call with eric mason the cfo for a city in uh in massachusetts and he's a recurring guest and we talked we had a phenomenal conversation about uh, money velocity, bank reserves, what that means for investors and inflation, national debt to GDP. Uh, of course, Eric had to throw in a couple of, uh, you know, <laughs> a couple of historical references. We actually, you know, kind of pivoted. What happens when a company like Amazon comes into a city? How do they get these tax credits that allow them to pay? zero dollars in federal income tax eric actually flips it on me oh hey oh had a, a little bit of a false start there on the uh, intro music but i'm very excited to to share this episode with you guys as always this episode of rich by 36 is brought to you by the beastly newsletter at richby36.com it's our subscription newsletter you can sign up today get your first two weeks for free after that it's just 27 dollars a month as of Tuesday, when I checked, we were beating the S&P by 16% since we started the newsletter uh, back in August. And look, it puts three trade ideas in your inbox every Monday morning. These are profitable companies uh, in growing industries, and we use fundamental analysis to decide what and why to buy, and then we lay a technical screen over the stock to figure out exactly when to sell, and it's working. Subscribe at richby36.com. Uh, again, follow me on Twitter, rich underscore by underscore 36. We're also on Instagram at richby36. You can reach me at george at richby36.com. Uh, there's a lot, lot going on there. But anyway, let's get to the show. All right, Eric, we are lot 321. Clap. We're live. Thanks for joining us again on the now rebranded Rich by 36 podcast. Very happy to be on. Uh, yeah, man. I'm happy to have you back. And we've we've started getting, I think, smarter as a show, uh, which is one of the, you know, you've helped us do that. <laughs> Thank and you. Since you've last came on, uh, I've spoken a little bit about fiscal multipliers, uh, the national debt to GDP, and you actually mentioned something that I wanted to also give you the, the chance to explain in the last podcast, which was money velocity. So yeah. those are the three things I'm going to serve it to you like a buffet and you can choose where you would like to start. And if we have time, we can move on to, to another one. Well, I guess since we teased it last time I was on, I'd like to talk about money velocity. What is, what is it and why does it matter? All right. So money velocity is the rate at which money not to use a definition, not to use the same term and definition, but the rate at which money, currency uh, moves, or any really liquid asset moves throughout the economy. Um, when it was first, money velocity has been around forever. It's always been a force. Uh, but if we go back to, say, the discovery of the new world, um, that caused massive, massive inflation in like Spain, Portugal, and Europe, in Europe or the Western world. Um, and it did that because they had a commodity-backed currency that was backed in gold and in silver. So when they went to the New World and unfortunately stole all that gold and silver and brought it back to Europe, we can think of money velocity not just being the rate at which merchants exchanged in that time period, but actually the time it took gold and silver in the bowels of those ships to get across the Atlantic Ocean. 
So what happened is that you almost had what I would call inflationary hammer, which is when they discovered all this new gold. Oh, wow, look at the you know, Tenochtitlan. land. You've got all these places covered in gold. Um, suddenly, that makes people think that their currency is worth less value because there's more of their currency. Just simple supply and demand. Um, currencies are not inherently void of supply and demand. Um, every Everything is at the whim of supply and demand. So when we talk about money velocity, we can think of it in its first inception of, you know, the slowest it's ever been is it coming across the Atlantic, taking two, three months to get to Spain or Portugal. And what what that means basically is that that money is moving slower. It means you need more of that money to support an economy. Think of it. If you, any good you're reliant on, if it takes a longer time to get there, you're going to need more of it because you're inherently going to be scared of scarcity. Now, if we fast forward to today, we've seen money velocity reach light speed and it, I say relatively today, I'm going to start a little bit in the seventies when we talk about Milton Friedman and some of his great work um, is the idea of economies fairing something that was talked about. Keynes talked about in the thirties and forties, which is a liquidity trap, which is the idea that you have people wanting to exchange in the economy, but there's actually no cash or medium of exchange to create that. So Friedman talked, uh, Keynes talked about and Friedman ironically who's on the other side of the spectrum this is why I love economists from the furthest to the left Keynesian to the furthest to the right neoclassicalist we all play by the same rules all right we may have opinions on how we should implement but we all like to say we all play by the same rules um, so what you know our Chicago guy Milton Friedman being a, you know an economist who subscribes to Chicago School of Thought obviously I'm very biased towards Friedman um, He's not my favorite economist, but I'm very biased towards him. Um, but when he talks about monetary policy, he talks about the need for government to create an environment where money is available. Um, in that it's so important. In economics, it's described as V, or the ratio at which money can flow through the economy. But Friedman, in monetarists in general, talk about that money velocity. How fast can it move? Um, there's all these beautiful, beautiful secondary effects price stickiness is another one. So price stickiness is how much does the price stay the same over time? There's a great economist, Dr. Young, who uh, analyzed the price of Coca-Cola for a 100-year period. The price really never moved. Um, And that's because we have these things in economics called menu costs. You think of it, if you ran a restaurant and you had to change the menu every time to change the price, if if an input cost goes up a penny, you're not going to spend $2 to reprint a menu. So you're gonna the the producers likely to internalize that cost more. As technology gets better and better and better, these things like menu cost, shoe leather costs. That's if you're gonna walk to the bank to get money, you're gonna lose your shoes are gonna get worn out. The economics are called those shoe leather costs, and that's an awful awful example. But that ability to exchange has a value. Your time has a value. So as money velocity in these. Uh, uh, increases in these menu costs because now you have a digital menu. Like you go in there and you hit two buttons and your menu's all changed on a digital board. Or instead of walking to the bank, I could pick up my phone and bank on my phone. So my shoe leather costs go down and money velocity starts skyrocketing. When we do interact with these liquid goods, I always say cash because that's like the number one liquid good in my opinion. Um, but M1 and M2, monitor, those monetary based, your, sa- your checking account, your savings account, these assets you have available to you, um, 
because we have these better technologies and these better systems, that it begins to accelerate quite quite rapidly. There is no longer a need for banks to have, even though banks must carry 10% of their deposits in, res, uh, in reserves, there's no need to have that physically there. It's all digital. If the US government wants to induce quantitative easing, it's buttons on a keyboard. It's not actually going out and filling banks with cash. So as we talk about money velocity, it begins to, we've got to the point where technology is so fast and so seamless that $1, if it moves at infinite speed, can make up the entire monetary base. That's why quantitative easing and monetary-based expansion over the, since the 2008 recession has been such a struggle to induce inflation. Um, there's some economists, um, I don't know if I fully fall in this category, but it's, it's a theory that's thought of by better economists than I, which is that monetary policy in terms of causing inflation through money velocity is a moot point now. That the, everything's so seamless and so fast and transactions occur so rapidly that really trying to just increase a monetary base by printing more money doesn't even doesn't even stop liquidity traps anymore that liquidity traps aren't even a a fair anymore again don't know if i don't know if i fully subscribe to that but it's certainly a very notable backed by really good economist idea that's out there um so that was a little bit of a long rant on, mon, on what money velocity is but i really want to give the full picture i know i started in the 1400s but i think i brought it to today yeah so you said at the beginning you know, back in the 1400s, you needed more gold because it moves slower. And, you know, now the, we have more money than I think we've maybe ever had before. I was looking at yeah. just like a, a chart of the uh, money creation over the last year. And, and you look at like Q1 of this year, it just skyrockets out of control. <laughs> But it's moving faster than ever before. So now, and we're not, we're still not seeing the inflation um, that, that I think just rationally thinking like, all right, you're expanding the, uh, the monetary base by whatever it is, 20, 30% in a given quarter. And there's no reaction whatsoever to inflation. And what you, what you just said, I think kind of alluded to that. You're saying that there's, it's just, it moves so quickly that that it just doesn't matter? Yeah, so demand, when we look at that demand line, that the downward sloping demand curve on a chart, we got we, we always have to ask ourselves, what, what composites demand? What, what is demand? And demand is not just how much you want a good. It's also how hard is it to get that good? So back 100 years ago, 500 years ago, there was this thought that these, this currency, what we trade with, was scarce that it was hard to come by. Gold is hard to come by. Silver is hard to come by. Um, you have to go kill an entire Inca civilization to get gold. I mean, that's pretty difficult. Exactly. And then you have to, you know, your ship's going to sink and you're going to, you know, you're, you're attacked gonna, by pirates. Yeah, attacked by pirates. <laughs> like this is, a, this is a cost prohibitive transaction. <laughs> like I go to the ATM and just get, you know, a, you know, take money out. And like, I'm not worried about some guy being with a peg leg and a pirate yeah. on his shoulder being like, oh, give me your money. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> Live in a pretty safe neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> but no, with it, it, that, there's no scarcity. There, there aren't bank runs anymore. You look at all that happened in COVID. Not a single bank run. In fact, the banks are having a hard time getting coins. It's the opposite of a bank run. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, because people don't, so few people were going to the bank that they were running out of coins. <laughs> why, why is that? Why is that different between now and you know the great, uh, great depression when there when there were bank runs? Yeah. 
I think there's two points. One, I think financial literacy is at an all-time high. With that said, we still need way more financial literacy. I think that's part of it. People trust banks. Niall Ferguson in, uh, writes a lot about this. I'm a big Niall, Fer- Niall Ferguson guy. Um, he says, the simplest way to define money is trust inscribed. The trust in the U.S. government. We have our issues. I'm not, and obviously, I'm not going to get in politics on this, but we trust our U.S. government. We trust that this dollar that I'm holding in my hand is going to be valued at a dollar and that there isn't going to be currency manipulation, that the, that the money sitting in my bank account is safe. And FDIC helps that. I think FDIC is the best thing that has stopped bank runs, knowing that you know you get $250,000, that even if everything goes to hell, you're still going to get the cash. Now, there's a discussion to be made, how much is that cash going to be worth? But that trust, that, that you tr- once you trust yeah. the system, you're going to be less likely to want to hoard anything because you know it's there. And on top of that is that so much of our transactions are now done digitally that you're going to want the value you put on the accessibility of the cash far outweighs the risk you see it not being stuffed underneath your mattress. Uh, Which is what happened in Germany and these other country, countries that have had negative interest rates. The, the, the thinking, I believe, was uh, if we lower interest rates to negative interest rates, right? You have to pay me money to, to hold your money with me. You're not going to hold your money with me. Well, the 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 benefit of being able in a you know globalized society to just to send money left and right with your computer outweighed the 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 cost of negative interest rates. And the irony of that to me is that all you have to do is look at Clio metrics to be like, oh, that that was going to work because Western Union has had a crazy successful history of charging people to move money. Like we have, I mean. We have yeah, companies that have existed for hundreds of years who all they do is you pay them to move your money. That clearly people will pay for ease of access to funds. So I, I don't know why that – that's why I think it's – you know me. I, I, I begrudge the fact of how much I love history and applying economics to it is that we can look at history and be like, people haven't changed. <laughs> like People are willing to pay money to move their cash. If you're going to do it at a Western Union rate that's you know way, way higher than what – you know a German bank or a Swiss bank is going to charge you, you know, fractions of an interest rate. Yeah. And on top of that, you view the money in your checking account as consumption money. So you're merely just implicit. That's merely an implicit cost on things you're buying. It's like a tax. You're not going to try and avoid it. You're just like, all right, I guess it's part of the transaction. If anything, it's going to inhibit your consumption, which is going to negatively affect your GDP. The, I, I don't like negative interest rates. I, I don't think they, they, I, Do you I think we'll ever get there here. Personally, I don't. I think that's. I think we'll get near zero. Um, I think we're already we're already near zero for federal fund rate. I think we'll be nearer zero if that even nearer. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this: Is that something that could ever be set by the market, or is that a uh, is that set by the the Federal Reserve? Oh, that is the a, Treasury, I guess. Like, I love you know, that market question. participants force interest rates below zero. Yeah, I I, I love this question because uh, this uh, the city of the CFO for has half a billion dollars in debt. And um, we, because we have schools, we have everything. Like we're a fairly large city. Um, we went to market in September, and we got an interest rate of one point three percent. It just in our our short term debt was twenty eight basis points. And I think of it like, can the market create a zero percent interest rate? My answer is, it depends on the debt. I would say if you have tax deductible debt, then yes, I think you could have the market, and it would simply be the difference between whatever the tax rate is invert that to some percentage and that absolute value could be 
expressed in the negative side of the equation. Um, so could you have a normal interest rate, negative interest rate on set by the market? I absolutely think you could. I especially think if you have uncertain tax policy, it could happen. Um, now, do I think the Federal Reserve could, or the Treasury, or, whatever, or any entity, even a bank, have a negative interest rate? I think it's hard. I think it's hard to be the first person to do it. I think that that barrier to get over, especially because the U.S. is such a banked economy. Like our citizens trust banks, love banks. We 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 really we understand banking very well as as a populace. So I think if you're the one guy who's like, well, that guy's charging you, you know, negative point oh five percent, I'll give you positive point zero zero one percent. I think the average Americans are like, oh, I'll get bank with that guy. And that guy's going to hoard all the cash and force the market to come back on the positive side. Um, federal fund rates going to zero, going to negative. I can see them at zero going to negative. Our currency is used too much for trade. I just think there's some bad politics there that, that may make it difficult to sustain negative. But again, I could be completely wrong on that. It's just my, like that economic gut on it. I wanted to ask you, before I come back to negative interest rates, I did have one follow-up question there. Uh, but before we get too far away from from money velocity and, and the amount of money that's been created, uh, J.P. Morgan's third quarter earnings report revealed that for the first time in history, the ratio of loans to deposits dropped below fifty percent. Right, so the the Fed digitally creates money by making a tally on a ledger and saying that J.P. Morgan now has more in reserves than they did yesterday. And the theory is that JP Morgan should then go loan out money, but they're they haven't done that yet. They've just they've just sat on and all these banks have sat on giant piles of cash more than they ever have in terms of deposits to, to loans and or I guess reserves to loans in history. So uh, does this matter? Is this gonna create like a snowball liquidity effect once it starts to own, unwind? Is this gonna be good for economic growth? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, I, I love this stuff. I absolutely, I'm a huge, uh, I love JPM. I think Diamond, uh, Ray Dalio is like one of the best people, but uh, Jeff Diamond, all those guys who, you know, advise work in that air, in that sector. Um, so two, two parts on that is I think in the short run, I don't really see it as the most, um, dangerous thing in the short run I, I think we're seeing incredibly extreme six deviation shocks um that are so uncommon that we don't have metabolize it when you have a fractional reserve system um like we have you know for every you for every dollar you lend out you have to have 10 cents in the bank there are some countries that don't have even fractional reserve that they just, you can loan as much money as you want it, regardless of what reserves, I think Malaysia is one of those countries. What? Yes, yes, that is. <laughs> How does that make sense? I had a great uh, professor in college, uh, just fantastic economist. Worked in he worked in Japan for many years, and uh, he used to talk about that style of triple M is what we call it. That's some country before triple M was even a thing. A lot of these and to induce trade, a lot of these uh, um, Asian nations would 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 do that. And I was like, that seems really dangerous. He goes, yeah, people don't trust banks. I'm like, yeah, that's true. That would make people not trust banks. Yeah. I don't understand how that works at all. It's just made up money. It's like yeah. people, people crap on fiat currencies. Like at least we have a standard. Um, so short run, I don't see a horrible, horrible issue with it until we come back to that zero deviation, zero standard deviations from the mean. We, you brought up a great point. Uh, last time we were on, which is like, does anybody, we have quite an easing. Has anybody figured out how to unwind this? That, what you what you brought up, you're looking at it right now, JPM. How do you unwind this? How do you go from a 0.1 
uh, fractional banking system to a market-derived 0.5. Like, that is great. You are now five times more restricted by the market. You're just five times more conservative. That that 0.4 difference is, like, the best way we can tangibly express that the risk aversion these banks are having to engaging in this market. Part of, and it's, it's a twofold. Part of it is investors. There are a lot of investors who want the cash, but it's the, I feel like a lot of banks have risen up their restrictions so high that it's almost like, well, you created this infinite barrier of entry. It's like, yeah, you could start an airport, but you can't buy any, you can start an, air, an airline, but you can't buy any airplanes. So, well, thank you. I, that, that's cool. But <laughs> what do you mean I can't buy any airplanes? If you're preventing the person from getting access to that liquidity, it, you're going to continue to grow balance sheets and you can continue to have these ratios get further and further away from accessibility by you know the average investor. The long-term of it, though, I think is really, and I think the long-term includes that unwinding that we've talked about, but from a long-term perspective, it, 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 it makes me really, uh, it's going to be a great economic paper that a lot of people are going to write probably 30 years from now. Uh, but I think what's important to look at and I think why this is happening, George, what I think is causing it is that there's a great statistic, A-L-L-L, which is allowed, lo- le- allowed losses for leverage leases. And it's my favorite, absolute favorite graphic, favorite statistic to follow for the economy. Um, it's, Fred records it. It's great statistic. Is near at almost an all-time high. And th- that's, that's bad. That's bad because what that's saying is that people are defaulting on stuff. People aren't, aren't making those uh what do you call it those payments aren't make, being able to engage in paying off their loans but the what's interesting is that the non-performing loan market had a nice bump in march and april and it has been climbing but it's climbing far less than what we'd expect and that's because these banks have conf- i think have a lot of confidence that the markets are returned to normal so they're not writing off those losses which is causing them to stack up on their balance sheet that to me is that that's the guillotine climbing up now, if it stays up there, good, and it slowly comes back down, you're fine. But if that keeps climbing and we see systematic foreclosures, that's going to drop. Um, I actually believe the former. I think we're going to see this unwind and come back down to normal. I believe that a lot of these analysts at banks who have lived through the 2008 recession, if we didn't have the 2008 recession, I would be not in this camp. But because we had that, I think a lot of these institutional investors and these institutional analysts at banks are like, all right, we, we know when we're going to have to unwind this eventually, but we're going to be in a worse financial position if we don't, if we if we hold, if we get rid of all this debt. Um, all right, hang tight. Let me, let, me, let me clarify a couple of things here. So the, in, in Q2 2020, the ALLL, the Allowance for Loan and Lease Losses for Commercial Banks in the United States, was a $223 billion. The only time it's ever been higher than that was Q1 of 2010. Okay, so when and this is essentially commercial banks, the the J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, they are setting aside money to cover the losses on expected non-performing loans. So what I'm hearing is when they do this, they have to keep more money in house to cover these losses, which means that they're going to that loan to deposit loan to reserve ratio is going to increase. Right. And yeah, okay, it's making sense to me now, right? So as that loan to deposit, as the allowance, as the economy starts to smooth out and they can slowly start dropping this ALL number, they're able to put more of their reserves either 
back into the market or, or given back to the government, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And if it happens like that slowly, that just creates a nice kind of, nice yeah. kind of tailwind for economic growth. Just like pushing yeah. the sailboat along. Yeah. Or oh, it's a, get it. or it's a hurricane if it's too fast. <laughs> yeah. And if it's too fast, then everything goes to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, we should be laughing at that. <laughs> but is that, but, the ALLL is one of those metrics that economists love that I'm surprised like I don't hear more like financial institutions talk about. It's one of those weird – and I was – whenever I, I talk to investors, even individuals looking at investing, I'm like – I get a lot like, what's the best metric to look at? This GDP number, that GDP number, GNI, Genies. I'm like, no, look at that number because if that number is healthy, banks are optimistic. If that number starts climbing, yeah, it becomes very complicated. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. You. I had another question for you on inflation. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a little side note of that. I love wait. ALLL. That's like my metric. <laughs> I did want to talk to you about national debt to GDP. Yeah. And this is something that I've also brought up in a couple of different podcasts and blog posts. Um, you know, one, one I was talking about, you know, are baby boomers really to blame for millennials' struggles? And I think I, I, I argued that no, this. What's the percentage of people who make more money now at age 30 than their parents just reached an all-time low, but that's been happening since the 1940s. So I think it's a structural issue. And then in another uh, post that I was talking about fiscal multipliers and what's happening with the budget. And it's funny, the, the Congressional Budget Office, there's two different websites. There's the Democrat website, and then there's the Republican website, and they have totally different takes on what's going on. But looking at the just the, the, they put out a graph that said, yeah, we just, I think we're at 106 or 107% of debt to GDP. Yeah. Right. So if we didn't spend a single dollar for the next year and just took all the money that we made in the economy and went to pay off our debt, we would still have debt. We'd still have 6%. <laughs> We'd still have 6% debt. But there, the Republican website has put out a chart that's projecting the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio to exceed 200%. And for some reason, maybe it's just for round numbers' sake, that seems like a pretty big deal to a lot of people. And I know that – I don't know this. Does does Japan have over 200% debt-to-GDP? Yeah, so they just eclipsed uh, 300%, I believe, a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what ex- – you know, why – is there any sort of significance to 200% of debt-to-GDP – uh, what other developed nations have eclipsed that and how has that kind of affected their economy? And then where does modern monetary theory come into all this? Yeah, this is, I love national debt. Um, I love everything in economics, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hitting home runs left and right here, man. I have a question. Macroeconomics is like my favorite thing in the world. I love talking about it. But uh, no, it's, it, national debt is one of the most polarized political macroeconomic data indicators that we have that is so intricate and it, it's very hard to metabolize. Um, so the first question is national. The first question is like, Hey, national debt. What is, what does that mean to like investors like you and I, what, what does that mean to us, George? Um, relatively nothing. There is no data that shows that national debt correlates to any bad in, influx into the economy. Uh, but if other people, if it gets to the point where people don't believe in our debt and they stop buying it and the government's not able to refinance, then that's an issue, right? That is absolutely an issue. But for 
one very, very weird global currency um, issue with U.S. debt, which is that the U.S. debt, the U.S. dollar acts as an intermediary force for international trade. So if Japan wants to loan money to Germany, Japan doesn't lend yens to euros. It goes yens to dollars to euros. In theory, the U.S. debt, the U.S. debt could be printed on one, do, uh, one bill and be entirely paid off. Um, there are some inflationary, there are massive inflationary political, probably start World War III. Um, would be the, it wouldn't even be the first war in the last hundred years started by inflation. There's an argument they made World War II was largely caused by inflation under the Weimar Republic, led the mm-hmm. way to, you know, le- led to massive jingoism that, you know, led to an Austrian man to, you know, take over Europe for six, seven years. Um, but so the, the issue, George, you bring up is kind of, uh, that long-term forecasting. So as you know, investors make decisions in the short-term and long-term. So the long-term decision-making, it definitely pinches. A lot of the economic theories and papers that we can reference lay very silent on the long-term effect of these very high high debt ratios because we merely haven't had long enough data to secure it either way. So it is currently a null hypothesis, we would call it. It's, It's something that we can neither prove an alternative hypothesis for nor reject its existence as a whole in economics. But where it starts affecting the average investor, I would say, is when the government starts increasing its marginal debt consumption. So not so much it's renewing its debt or staying flat year over year if it increases. That creates something we call crowding out because the U.S. government is so big, $4 trillion, that if it borrows money, it can actually crowd out other investors for how much cash is in the economy. And that what, what happens with that is in, you know, private lenders can't get access to cash because people have so much faith in U.S currency or you i should say ust bills and notes and all that stuff so they have so much more trust in that that they may forego investing in a good company because i can get a almost same return tax advantages and my money's locked up so so, all of a sudden the the federal government is just sucking money out of the economy to meet its and then paying off interest to the I'm assuming the same sorts of institutional investors who hold the debt exactly and we see that even with local debt because we have the ability to raise taxes that we have the lawful ability to pretty much always pay you back. Um, but when you look at the long-term effect, that's or the long-term issues. I'm actually going to go back to, uh, I'm going to go bring, bring a little history into this in England. Yes. <laughs> yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> um, England, I believe just recently paid off its last um, bill from this um, seven years war. So the 70, which is 1750s, 1760s, yeah. they refinanced their debt um, shortly after they had a currency issue of their own. Um, and it resulted in these, like a 200 year debt payment. And there's an argument made that didn't super affect it. What's funny is that the greatest expansion of economic, we'll never replicate this ever, was the Industrial Revolution. It was like a 5,000 leap forward. It's a great book titled that too. That happened. 50 years after England renegotiated this ultra long-term debt payment. So in terms of spurring technological and innovation in economic growth, despite having this massive debt payment and there's these massive debts from all these wars they were fighting, they were, their economy was so able to innovate at a rate we had never seen before in mankind. So it, when I look at history, it makes me less pessimistic about high debt, but there's an important question. Um, I think that needs to get, well, what was, ha- you know, did England's debt to GDP ever exceed 100% or 200% back in the 1700s, 1800s? It, we, we don't have great GDP numbers for that. Um, yeah. So it, it, 
it's hard to define GDP in that period because there was so much cottage injury, industry economics yeah. that we really weren't sure what the production was. We know it was exceptionally burdensome. That's how a lot of economists and historians define it. I would not call the U.S. debt exceptionally burdensome. Um, we're, we're still able to have a massive defense budget. We're still able to provide you know a lot of social programs. Um, in a lot of our marginal tax ability, which is the ability for the U.S. government to increase taxes, is actually still fairly high. Um, but I think it's an interesting question is always like, who owns our debt? Actually, the U.S. citizen owns the, majority, owns the largest share of U.S. debt. We own about 20.6%. Then Japan at 20.2%. And then China, I believe, is in the high 18%. So the other question with debt is, who owns your debt? This can be an issue. Uh, like our biggest our biggest uh, ally, and like us, own most of the U.S. citizens yeah. themselves own vast majority of debt. Um, but no, I mean, when we, when we talk about national debt, it's it's a scary number to look at. We have a hard time quantifying like $22 trillion. Like, I mean, that, that number is is an insane amount of number. It, it, to be honest, I don't think we'll ever pay back the national debt. I think it'll just continue to get rolled over for end of time. I just think our economy is so far advanced that it's it's no longer really, uh, it's, it can no longer ever get back to, uh, ever get back to zero. And, but it's it's a very flashy headline that people can grab whoever's you know if there's a republican in office democrats are going to grab it if there's a democrat in office republicans will grab it the national debt is increasing you know there's billboards around the country that are electronic and they just have like a, a like a casino thing the national dread is just doing this right and but but from what i'm understanding it's not a major concern to individual americans to american investors um, we have examples of other developed economies going over 300% and still operating. And um, so it's not something that we should, we should stay up at night and, and fret about. No, it, George, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I know this is your show, but I'm going to flip the script on you and ask you a question if you don't mind. Please do. <laughs> uh, you brought up a great, when you kind of, when you went to the segment, you brought in a great aspect of it, talking about like, you know, since 1940, money earned real dollars earned by 30 has been declining um you, you know you you keep a way more tab into the market that fluctuation than i do i mean i'm, I'm more of a i'm more of a ten thousand thirty thousand uh, yeah. feet guy um begrudgingly because i do love the intricacies of this from your side from the investor side do you see a lack of willingness to engage because that's a huge portion of economic growth is the engaging the economy do, do you see younger people putting off engaging in, in, in this? There's, I've seen some metrics, but I'm curious about somebody who actually, you know, has their, their finger on the pulse. No, uh, I would say there's even, there's never been a, we, we've never been more engaged ever. Yeah. And it's never been easier for us to engage than ever. Uh, in terms of opening up a Robinhood account or opening up a Fidelity account, I think that the, the issues are you know we don't teach people about money in high middle school and high school yeah. that's a big issue uh pensions that that's an asset for somebody and when they're in their 30s right yeah. those are essentially non-existent now uh home prices have skyrocketed right so it's harder to buy a home like there's all millennials are waiting longer to buy homes and get married and all that sort of stuff and and, and there's been wage stagnation but I think so you've had this shifting of the burden 
on wealth creation. Maybe that's not the, the but financial security, the, the burden of financial security has changed from it used to be employers and the government. And now that's shifting to individuals. And I don't think that we're adequately prepared for the most part to, to tackle that. And I think there's, we have the, the willingness and the ability and then obviously quarantine happens and everybody's at home in front of their computer and on Reddit going, ah, that guy made a million bucks on Tesla calls. Let me try. Uh, so there's the eagerness and the willingness, but I think that the skill and then the means with which to execute yeah. are, are the two things that are, are lacking. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's you. you I don't know how that ties into the national debt. No, it, but. It, so the, the reason I brought it up, <laughs> the, no, the reason I brought it up is because national public debt is very different than debt at home. And I think we are seeing a individual debt crisis with student loans and you, you kind of hit the magic, magic word with that. It was just the, uh, the mortgages, people are putting off buying houses because the numbers are just crazy. So if you're making less real dollars from 1940, but you still want to buy a house and home values have increased in real dollars, that's a greater debt ratio. That same force is happening in the public is happening with national debt is happening with public debt, whether it's your state, your, your local government, your County government, whatever. Um, but the difference is how it interacts versus the individual's economy, you know, your at-home finances versus national finances. The ability to tax, the ability to always gain more value or gain more revenue through taxation is crucial. You can't just tell your, your boss, hey, I bought a house. You need to pay me 10% more. Federal government can say that. Hey, guy. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, sit down right here. Let me talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's what, it, what I want to, what I was curious about that is that we come back to that marginal tax rate. How much more can the government tax? European governments? A lot. A lot. European governments you know, can't. Amazon paid $0 in federal income tax last year. I consider myself a dirty, dirty capitalist. And that angers me. <laughs> like, pay, if you make all that money, pay taxes. Give, like, come on, man. Um, as long as the U.S. government can continue to keep a good margin, uh, excess in what they can tax, your debt will be more valuable. And I know that from personal experience because my city has a very, very large... Um, ability to increase taxes that we don't and that makes our debt double a plus we have the same debt ratings the united states because you have the ability yeah the ability it's more let me ask you this and this uh, and this is at risk of running over our our time constraint but i I, I just thought (laughs) if if amazon comes to quincy and says we want to put in a new warehouse let's instead of just take quincy out of the out of the equation if it's seattle or wherever they've been right washington dc the city gets together and comes up with the presentation to amazon right yeah and it's we'll give i don't know you can build here and then and then there's all this other tax stuff all these tax benefits that come in how do those work how, who creates those and and is amazon going we're not going to come to you unless you give us this yeah um i can't really speak for how amazon handles negotiations but general yeah you're right company xyz that's massive and has a dominant market share over e-commerce you are be very that's how they usually negotiate so i've actually negotiated multiple tax agreements with private entities in my role so i am familiar how it works it's about it's about uh, it's actually like in oh this is great they're actually nobel laureate the the two gentlemen who won the nobel prize in economics last week won it for this what we call pit markets like auction markets it's a matter of knowing you not knowing what the other person wants to pay, but you knowing how much you want to pay and trying to, you're both trying to reduce your costs as much as possible. And that gap between your two costs is where you negotiate. Yeah. Um, right. 
Yeah, it's 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 difficult. It's difficult. What so how it works is that you from a property tax standpoint, vast majority of local governments are run off property taxes is they can either negotiate how much they pay on property taxes or how much their property is worth. I always like doing how much they pay, a per, reducing that percentage through what is called a TIF, tax incentive financing. Um, so because what I want to do is I want to say, you only pay me you know, 50% less, you pay me 50% of the taxes that you owe me. And what I hope is your property value skies through the roof and you end up getting hosed on the back end, which can happen with an Amazon. Amazon come in and have so much title effect or any large, uh, there's other companies that have like other title effect, like a FedEx or something like that can really, yeah. really help. They're just bringing in tons of employees that are buying houses and the band is is going through the roof and, which drives up prices. And they're walking and over- and then your tax thing works yeah. for the city, right? Yeah. You make more money on the back end. Yep. Or the other option um, is what's called a pilot, a payment in lieu of taxes. And that's a fixed payment over X amount of, sometimes it's indefinite. Like Harvard doesn't pay taxes, they pay a pilot. But how does this work for Amazon? What, what or, excuse me, company XYZ that's dominant in e-commerce. How do they, you know, how does a, a company like that not have to pay any federal income tax? Is it just we have all of these different tax breaks yeah. from across the country that just cancel out our revenue? Yeah. And then they buy tax. When we do affordable housing, um, you can have these tax uh, instruments that then Amazon, companies like Amazon, Apple, big Fortune 500 companies buy to further reduce their tax rate. But I'll tell you, George, that wow, the, so, yeah. the very weird thing that it becomes very complicated and useful uh, governance is uh, they're not negotiating down really the la- the value of their land. They're, what they're negotiating down is their personal property tax, which is all think of like all the systems Amazon needs, all the robots, all the assemb- the mm-hmm. conveyor belts. It's worth more than the land in the building will ever be worth. That's really what they want to negotiate down, and that's yeah. where they try and really push the price down. Uh, but no, it's it's it is weird how they're able to do that, and it's. Those are loopholes. I'd rather fix a loose loophole than write new laws with more loopholes that people are just going to exploit. Yeah. It, yeah. That. Well, Eric, thank you. Uh, I wanted to give you a couple of minutes here to tell us about the hell's the name? Astronomics, <laughs> a, a new podcast by uh, by you and, and a buddy. And oh, God, can you hear that? Yeah. It's <laughs> actually the intro for your trailer here. Go ahead. Yeah. Tell us about your new podcast. Well, George, thank you for giving me a couple seconds to plug that. Um, no, so what it talks about is I, I just listeners know I absolutely love ranting about this stuff, but I tend to like to be apolitical. So we could talk about Cleometrics as the past, but looking forward, which I think the next frontier is going to be space. And we're not talking about you know, space travel. I mean, I trust me, I love a good rocket launch as much as the next guy. But what it's going to mean from like an economics, <laughs> business, and legal perspective, like how is trade going to work in space? Like how is uh, like a Martian recession going to affect? your portfolio like kind of viewing how if we have it's very similar to you know you look at like the new all the money that was made when we discovered the new world there's another the next frontier for that is space the money that can be yeah. on moon or mars or wherever we're going to be and that's what the podcast wow. talks about um, so uh, hopefully it's, we try to do it humorously <laughs> well uh I've, you have one episode out right now uh it was actually released october 19th so this is brand spanking yep. new every monday I listened to the trailer. It was uh, it was very it was a very entertaining forty five <laughs> seconds. So I'm excited to to come in and and follow this astro nomics astronomics. Eric, I really appreciate you spending uh, dang, spending fifty minutes with me this morning. This was a lot of fun. Always uh, happy to be. Yes on or no George. question. Yeah. Yes or no. 
do fiscal multipliers change over time? Yes. Okay. That's a good. Uh, well, that's a good place to pick it up for the next time we have you on. <laughs> I appreciate Thank it. You. There. <laughs> Tonight